0: Good morning, faith family. I am so excited to be here and to be able to learn from God's word with you. So if you would, if you have a Bible with you, let's get that out and open it up. Or maybe you want to open the Bible app on your phone or tablet and navigate over to the book of Titus there in the New Testament. And we are going to be in chapter three. So if you would just turn in your Bibles over there to Titus chapter three. Now, the sermon today is not a Father's Day sermon, per se, which means it's, it's not a sermon about being a dad. Uh, but I am excited to be here on Father's Day. You know, for me, Father's Day is not, it's not a day that I particularly like being celebrated or anything, but it gives me a time in which I focus and reflect upon what it means to be a dad. And for me, being a dad is just the greatest honor and privilege of my life. And at the same time, it is absolutely the greatest responsibility and challenge of my life as well. I think about the instructions that we dads are given from God's word to not provoke our children to anger, but to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And I don't know about the rest of you dads, but that is something that I often fail at. Uh, But Praise God, His grace is sufficient. He will continue to lead us and guide us, and so I pray that for each of you as well. I don't know what it looks like in your family, or maybe what it looks like in your family growing up if you don't have kids in your household currently, but uh, for me, I find that often bringing my children up in the training and instruction of the Lord involves reminding them of the training and instruction of the Lord that they've already received, I find that kids need lots and lots of constant daily moment by moment reminders of the things they should be doing. Uh, For us, this this past week, earlier this week, we got a chance to go down to Gulf Shores for a little bit with my wife's extended family. And when we go on trips like this, we will often uh, give our kids what we call pep talks. And so about the time that we're kind of beginning to head into Gulf Shores, like we shut down the devices in the back of the car, we turn off the music, and the pep talk begins. And and the pep talk this week, you know, just involve things like, hey, Please be sure to say thank you. Let's make sure we're being very grateful for this. This is being provided for us. Make a big deal about how wonderful everything is. Let's be respectful. Don't be selfless. It doesn't matter how you hear other people. Talk to their parents. You know how to talk to us, okay? Let's keep these. Basically, what we're trying to tell them is, hey, remember who you are. And whose you are, and no matter what anyone else does or what anything else that happens around you, try to live with those things at the forefront of your mind. And really, there's a secret in that when we give our kids these pep talks, they're also like just as much for me and Liza as they are for them. And I don't know if that's ever true for you. If you find yourself in life in need of a little pep talk, not necessarily new instruction or new insight, but just a chance to like be reminded of things that you already know. I know that that's true for me, and evidently it was true for the church at Crete, because here when we get here to chapter three, that's kind of what Paul is wanting Titus to give them, a pep talk, to remind them of things that they already know. And so with that in mind, if you will, please follow along with me as I do read Titus chapter 3, just the first eight verses. Verses 1 through 8 of Titus chapter 3. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone." So here, Paul is calling Titus to give his church some reminders to insist on these things. Well, what things is it that Titus is insisting upon? Well, they're the things that we've been learning. Throughout the past few weeks, as we've been looking at the earlier chapters in Titus, about what God had accomplished in their lives, about whom elders were supposed to be, about how to guard themselves against false teaching, about the investment that older men and older women could make in younger men and younger women and raising them up as disciples. And then also it includes these things that he's reminding them of here at the beginning of chapter three that we see, especially in these early verses, to submit the rulers and authorities, to slander no one, to show gentleness to all people. In other words, Paul is wanting Titus to help the church at Crete remember how Christians act toward others. How Christians act toward others. Now, what do we mean by others? Well, someone other is someone that's not you. And when it comes to a group, others are others outside of the group. For the church at Crete, these were not church at Crete people. So they were other people living on the isle of Crete, but they weren't Christians yet, like the people who were in their church at Crete that Titus was caring for as their pastor. At least they weren't Christians yet. So in relation to these others, here's kind of how Paul wanted them to think about. Kind of the first reminder he wanted to give them about how they are to act toward others. And it's this. Christians should be good citizens. Christians should be good citizens. The first group of others, other than those in the church at Crete that Paul refers to, are these rulers and authorities. He uses this phrase elsewhere in one of his other letters to the church at Ephesus. And there he uses it in chapter six, where he's talking about spiritual warfare. And he's referring to spiritual forces that we, as God's people, are to take a stand against. But that's not the type of authority that he's speaking of here. Here he is talking about earthly powers, earthly authorities and rulers, specifically those who were in charge on the Isle of Crete. But what he's saying is applicable to us all, because we all have people in authority over us of one kind or another. But it's also applicable to us all, because it's not just about rulers and authorities on the Isle of Crete, that elsewhere in Scripture, elsewhere in the New Testament, we see other instructions regarding those in authority over us. Jesus said, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Paul wrote in Romans, let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Peter wrote in his first letter, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. There are authorities of all kinds, but Paul here, writing to the church at Crete through Titus, is specifically concerned with governing authorities, with government, governing authorities that are instituted, Paul says elsewhere, by God. Okay, well then how do we be good citizens? How, Christians are, how are Christians to be good citizens? How are we to act as good citizens toward governing authorities? Well, here he says, we submit. So we submit. He also says, we obey. So we submit and obey so long as it's not at odds with God and Scripture. We submit and obey to governing authority so long as it is not at odds with God and Scripture. One commentator that I read in preparing this week said it this way, that in general, Christians are not anarchists or, or rebels. Okay, we're not rabble-rousers. We submit, we obey, we abide by the law, we keep the peace, we just kind of go, we go along with the authorities until we don't go along with the authorities. Because there's reasons at times to not go along. And we could think about some of those reasons in Scripture. Let's think about Daniel and his buddies Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are captured, removed from their homeland, and taken as captives to Babylon. Yet there in Babylon, they live as outstanding citizens. In fact... No fault, no real fault can be found among them. There are times that they are commanded by the king to do something they do not want, to. and the way that they take their first step is to try to reason with the king to see if there are exceptions that can be made or compromises, they work within the system, so to speak. And some of those compromises are accommodated until commands come from the king that directly contradict the commands of God. When they're told not to pray to God, but to pray to the king. Or they're told not to worship God, but to worship the idol made in the likeness of the king. And in those moments, there's no compromise that can be made. That's just an outright no. They take a stand, they do not adhere to that law. I'm trying to make a big deal about it, but they're not going to do it. They're caught, they're found out, and they pay the penalty for it. Now in those stories we see God deliver them. God work through their lives to accomplish his glory in their stand. So there's times that they submit and obey, but there's also times that they don't. Because it brings them at odds with God and his word in scripture. We also see this in the New Testament. You can think about the book of Acts after the day of Pentecost. When Peter and John and the other apostles are going around proclaiming Jesus to anyone and everyone around them. Proclaiming his lordship. Telling people that he's the Messiah. He is the only one who can forgive sins. He is the only way to the Father. And the religious leaders at the time, the religious authorities over that area, they come in and command them to stop doing that. And they don't stop. And so the authorities arrest them. And an angel comes and lets them out of prison. And guess what they do? They go right back to doing what they were doing. And so they're called before the authorities once again. And the authorities say, you have to stop this. You have to be quiet. But in Acts 5.29, this is how they answer them. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. So we submit and obey to rulers and authorities, unless it means that in doing so, we are not submitting to and obeying God. We have to obey God rather than people. But you know what motivated the apostles to refuse and defy the reigning authorities, that's actually also what motivates Christians more often than not to submit and obey the reigning authorities. We must obey God rather than people. And God has told us in his word to submit and obey. But there are certainly other commands he has told us, to go and to make disciples, to worship him and nothing or no one else. And if submitting and obeying Means not doing the other commands, then we go with what God has said every single time. However, submission and obedience for us as Christians to governing authorities, it doesn't mean that being good citizens means that we are passive citizens. It doesn't mean that we just let government happen and we just do our own thing and we just, you know, we submit and obey unless there's a reason for us not to. No, Paul through Titus is telling the church at Crete there, hey, submit to rulers and authorities, obey. And then he says, to be ready for every good work. And so also as good citizens, not only do we submit and obey, as long as it doesn't put us at odds with God and his word, but also we make the most of every opportunity to do good works and to work for good. We make the most of every opportunity to do good works and to work for good good. So first, let's start with good works. Why do we do good works? Well, here are a couple of answers from Scripture. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul wrote, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And then Jesus, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So we as Christians, we do good works because God has made us to do good works and he's made good works for us to do. And we do them in obedience to him, but also so that others might see those works and through those works, they might come to know him and to give him the glory That he alone deserves. You see, part of doing good works is working for the good of everyone. That's how Paul describes these good works there in verse 8. At the end of the passage we read together here in Titus 3, he says, to devote themselves to good works, these are good and profitable for everyone. So Working for the good of everyone, this informs how we act as good citizens. We do good works and we work for the good of everyone. For an example, consider the issue of abortion in our nation. How for decades that was the law of the land. And we see it as contrary to the word of God. Now that could mean that we could not participate in that. We cannot contribute to it in some way. But that wasn't enough. Puts us at odds with God and his word, and so we work to change it, because that would glorify God. But we also work because that's the good, that's what's good for everyone else as well so praise God that we've been able to see the overturning of Roe v. Wade. What a victory to be celebrated. And all praise goes to him. And yet we know that God used many Christians working for good to bring it about. Working for good by lobbying, by protesting, writing letters and emails, running for office, writing laws, voting. I remember that immediately after the decision was handed down, I began to see comments in social media of people saying, well, I hope all these Christians are ready to help all these mothers and babies. And my first response to reading those was, we are. We're ready. Because it's what we've already been doing. Not only were Christians working for good, they were also doing good works. They were fostering, they were adopting, they were financially supporting mothers, they were giving of resources for mothers who needed things to be able to care for their babies. They were opening their homes to moms and babies. They were volunteering with and working for ministries and services like Save a Life Shelby or Save a Life Vestavia or Lifeline or Alabama Baptist Children's Home and many, many others. We were working for good and doing good works. And therefore, we're being good citizens, even as we generally submit and obey. Now, there's a lot more to be said about a Christian's relation to government. And we don't have time to get into all of it. And it can get really complicated. And we all have opinions on how a Christian should be a good citizen. But in any conversation that we might engage with one another on that topic, I hope that we'll also keep in mind Paul's second reminder. That Christians are not just to be good citizens, but also that Christians should be good people. Christians should be good people. Now, this should be one of the most blatantly obvious statements that you can hear a preacher give from a pulpit. But unfortunately, it's not. Because too often, we see the opposite. That Christians aren't always good people, that sometimes are actually bad people. We, we even see this portrayed in, in popular media. There, there's a very popular show this past spring that aired on HBO that was based on a very popular video game called The Last of Us. It, it was set in post-apocalyptic time. And the heroes in uh, this series, in one episode, as they find themselves in desperate need, like things are not going well, they need some real help, and they meet a character named David. And David is a Christian, and he's the leader and the pastor of another group of survivors. And David reads the Bible, and David talks about faith and belief, and David cares for his people, and David gives the heroes the things that they need in order to help them seemingly. I bet you can't guess what kind of person David turns out to be. Spoiler alert, he's a bad dude, a really, really bad. Bad guy. And we see this kind of thing all the time. One of the people who actually watched this episode and took notice of this was Rain Wilson. So some of you know Rain Wilson from playing the character of Dwight in the popular comedy The Office. And Rain Wilson watched this episode and he actually tweeted this out. He said, I do think there is an anti Christian bias in Hollywood. As soon as the David character in The Last of Us started reading from the Bible, I knew that he was going to be a horrific villain. Could there be a Bible reading preacher on a show who is actually loving and kind? Now, Rain Wilson is not a Christian, but he sees this and sees it even as an unfair portrayal. And we see this and all kinds of different media as well, the way that Christians are portrayed in a negative light. And we might be tempted to pawn it off, as Wilson did, on just the liberal media's bias. Except that would be ignoring some uncomfortable truths. Truths that throughout history, and even now, there are plenty of people who claim to be Christian and yet are not good people at all. One person commented on Rain Wilson's tweet and wrote, With all due respect, the prevalence of evil religious leader characters in media isn't without real life inspiration. And they then linked to a story about the decades of mishandling and cover up of abuse by the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's our convention, that's our denomination. Now, I happen to think Rain Wilson is correct. I think there is a negative bias toward Christians. But I also think the commenter on his tweet is also correct. There are real-life examples of this. Now, for most of us, it's not true. We'd make the argument that, well, those cases, they, they don't apply to most of us. At least, we pray not. But look at the specific instructions that Paul is giving to Titus to pass on to the church there. He writes, slender no one, avoid fighting, be kind, always show gentleness to all people. So honestly, how are we as the church, how are we specifically as the American church, how are we doing in those areas? Look at Christian Twitter. Look at political posts from Christians on Facebook. Go search the hashtag SBC23 for the Southern Baptist Convention meeting that took place this past week and read what pastors are saying. And you'll be forced to answer, well, some of us at least aren't doing too good. We've earned some of our bad reputation. But this was also evidently true for the church there at Crete. They weren't doing too good either. They, like some of us, needed some reminders. So let me boil it down to you, for you as, as simply as I can, okay? So Church of Brick Hills, remember, don't be a jerk to anyone. My wife's told me, that's, going to get me in tr- that's the part that's going to get me in trouble. So please be gracious just for her sake. But do- don't be a jerk to anyone. Again, it seems so obvious and simple, but it's not, is it? A couple of weeks ago, I got to go as a chaperone uh, for our Brook Hills Kids Camp. And it was an awesome time. And John and Phyllis and Macy and Sydney and the team did an amazing job. We had a ton of fun. We also spent time studying God's Word together. And we were laser-focused on John 15, 12, where Jesus taught his disciples, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. And in some of our times together, we had to admit that loving others can be really hard because some of the others can be really hard people to love. They can be, you know, as Christians, we're called to love anyone and everyone, no matter what they're like anyone Jesus said, love your enemy, even your enemies, love them. We're to love anyone and everyone. At the base level, that at least means we shouldn't be jerks to anyone. But the positive way to say it is don't be jerks to anyone. Instead, love everyone as Christ loves them. You know, we live in a current cultural climate in which we love our dividing lines. We identify ourselves with certain tribes, and we want to make sure that we know who's in our tribe and who's outside our tribe. We see this all over the place. We see it in sports, you know, Roll Tide, We're Eagle. We see it in popular culture. Are you a Marvel person? Are you a DC person? We see it in politics. Are you Republican or are you Democrat or are you a true Republican or are you a Republican in name only? We see it in the church. After all, that's basically what denominations are. Now in many cases, it's not necessarily the tribes themselves that are bad. But the rhetoric that's often used within tribes to refer to those that are not part of them, that's what reveals the real problem. That in our tribes toward others, we often demonize and we mock and we misrepresent we call names, we assume the worst, we assign terrible motives. We do things that we as dads, if we saw our children do them, we would provide immediate correction. Because you might say that we slander, that we pick fights, that we're mean, that we're harsh. This is some pep talk, huh? Now, when I was studying preaching in the seminary, we had a saying that before you preach a sermon to the church, you first have to preach that sermon to yourself. And so lest you hear any self-righteousness from me, let me echo what Paul said about himself and that I am the chief of sinners in this area. Social media is part of my job, so I'm on it a lot. But way too often, the first thing I do in the morning is not pick up my phone and open up my Bible app. It's pick up my phone and doom scroll Twitter. And I just get angrier and angrier and angrier, and yet I can't stop. Now, if you follow me on social media, you will see that I don't engage a lot. I don't participate much, hardly at all. But boy, if you could hear the tweets that I compose in my head and yet never post. So the Lord sanctified me a little bit, but we're not all the way there. See, I need this Reminder. And while these types of things, they play out in new ways today, like in social media, obviously that wasn't taking place there at the church at Crete, but the concept isn't new. And it wasn't new for them either. That's why Paul wanted Titus to remind them, because sometimes we forget. We don't just forget how we're supposed to act toward others. We also forget who those others are. And one of the reasons is because we forget who we used to be. We need to remember that we are more alike than different. We are more alike than different. You see, the church at Crete, they were Cretans, saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the others, for them, were other Cretans who had not been saved. They had not put their faith in Christ. Again, at least not yet. But look at what Paul reminds them of. He says, We too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. That also might describe the others currently, But it describes, the church at least used to describe who they were. You were just like them. The only thing that's different is Jesus entered your life. So what Paul's trying to do and give them this reminder is to change their perspective so that they can see these others as God sees them. Sinners in need of a savior just like they used to be. That's what I think this reminder calls us to do as well to see whomever the others may be in our lives, to see them as God sees them. Sinners in need of a Savior, just like we used to be. That's why we should be good people and good citizens. Is so that we can do good that others might see those good works and come to know God. That they too might be able to be redeemed by him. And Paul wanted the church there to remember that as well. He didn't want to just give them reminders of good things to do. He also wanted to remind them of the reason that they do those good things. Yes, he reminded them how Christians act toward others, but he also reminded them how Christians act toward others is because of how God acted toward us. How Christians act toward others is because of how God acted toward us. Last week, Pastor Matt helped us see from the last chapter that grace is the fuel for godliness and endurance, and similarly... We are able to do good works toward others because of good work that God has done for us and in us. Well, what exactly is that good work? Well, Paul here summarized it rather succinctly. He saved us. What's the good work that God did? He saved us. How did he act toward us? He saved us. Our heavenly father sent his only begotten son to save us from our sins. That salvation was made possible because his son, Jesus Christ, died a sacrificial death on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, for my sin, for your your sin, for the world's sin, for the sin of all others. There's not an other that you can think of whose sin cannot be atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. But he then went further. He didn't just stop there. He then raised Jesus on the third day to demonstrate his power over both sin and death. And so that's how salvation is made possible. That's how it was possible for him to save us. But what exactly did he accomplish? What was the work that he did in us through saving us? Well, that's what your next fill in the blanks are there. And I'm going to give them all to you at once, okay? So four things. He saved us, and in doing so, He made us clean. He made us alive. He made us new. And he made us heirs. Paul wrote, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Through the washing, in, in washing we are cleansed completely of our sins. We are made clean from our sins. The worst we've done, even the worst we've yet to do, is completely forgiven, full stop. This washing, it's full, it's total, it's complete. But this washing isn't like a shower that you take after you've been working out in the yard on a hot summer's day. where You just need to get the sweat and the dirt and the grime off because that's just what's on the outside. But this word for washing carries with it the idea of purification, of even everything on the inside is completely cleansed. It's more like taking the dirtiest, nastiest water that you can think of, filtering it through so that all the impurities are removed, and then treating it so that even the microbial problems that exist within it are completely taken away. And it is the most pure thing that you can see, except that metaphor doesn't even go far enough because it would have to be that at the end of the filtering and the treating, the water is actually not water anymore. As now something completely different, completely wonderful and so amazing and the most delicious thing you've ever put to your lips. Because in washing us from our sins, he regenerates us and he renews us. In making us clean, he makes us alive and he makes us new. So the New Testament is originally written in Greek. And... The word that's translated here as regeneration is the Greek word palingenesia, or palingenesis. It's kind of a combination of two Greek words, so genesis, meaning birth, and palin, which means again. So birth again, or born again. Now, for many of us, that probably reminds us of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3 where Nicodemus, a religious leader, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus at night to kind of ask him questions and to hear from him, to get some clarifications on his teaching. And in that conversation, Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. New birth is essential to being a Christian. You will hear that phrase used again, born again Christian, but there's no other kind of Christian. You have to have new birth. But when Jesus spoke about it with Nicodemus, he didn't use this word palingenesis. He used a different construct. You see, this word palingenesis, it's rather peculiar. It's not used often in even other sources, and it's only used twice in the New Testament. One is here in Titus 3, and the other is in Matthew 19. So in Matthew 19, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He tells them, hey, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter heaven. And they respond with, well, who can be saved then? And Jesus tells them, well, with God, all things are possible. And then Peter has this interesting question. He's like, well, we've left everything behind. And otherwise, Peter's saying, well, we're not rich, Jesus. So, you know, we've left everything behind to come and follow you. Uh, What will there be for us? kind of asking about what reward we'll receive. And Jesus answers that question, but he begins his answer by pointing them to a very specific moment in the future. In Matthew 19, 28, this is what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, that's the specific future moment, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. Okay, so the renewal of all things is the specific moment. We see that there at the renewal of all things, the Son of Man, Jesus, will be sitting on his glorious throne. This is a picture of some of what we see in the book of Revelation, where Christ is now reigning on his throne. And that phrase there, the renewal of all things, that's the word palingenesis. So you could replace that phrase with regeneration. Truly, I tell you, in the regeneration... When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. And it's a picture of new things, new creation, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, all things made new. That regeneration is coming. And Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that all those who have believed him will be there and be a part of it. But, for all those who have believed him, we don't have to wait for that regeneration because regeneration has happened in us now. Pastor Tim Keller called this time travel, and except it's not us moving and jumping out toward the future, it's God taking this future promise and bringing it here to our present reality. He makes us alive and makes us new. We are born again. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes that regeneration this way. Gives a picture of it when he says in Ephesians 2, 5, that God made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in sins. In regeneration, we're made alive. And in renewal along with it, we are made new. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And this work, washing, by new life and new creation in us. It happens by the Holy Spirit. It's something that God the Spirit does. The Father sent the Son to save us by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is the triune God doing his good work. And this work then makes us righteous and rightful heirs of God. Beloved sons and daughters in his family, co-heirs with Christ, who see the kingdom of God, who experience his salvation, who receive full life here on earth and will inherit eternal life with him. That's what he does for us when we were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved to our passions and pleasures. God did that. Why? Why did God do that? Why would he do that? Well, it's not because of our goodness. God did not do this good work because of our goodness. Here, Paul wrote that he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done. He wants us to do good works. God has made us to do good works. But it's not those good works that lead to him saving us. Again, remember how we're described in Ephesians 2. Paul wrote that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people don't do good because dead people don't do anything. God made us to do good works, but there's not near enough good works that we can do to save ourselves. We can't be good enough. In fact, our good works can end up keeping us from God just as much as our bad works. So our sin, the bad that we do, that separates us from God. But if we try to then earn his favor by doing as much good as we can, we're never going to be led to his salvation because it's not based on what we do. It is accomplished by what he does. He does the work. And why does he do it when we clearly didn't deserve it, when we were clearly helpless to play any part in it. Well, he saved us because of his love, kindness, mercy, and grace. He saved us because of his love and his kindness and his mercy and his grace. Paul starts this section here in verse 4 by saying, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, that's when he saved us. And it appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in Romans that God proved his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul continues in verse 5 that he saved us again, not by works of our righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. And again, think about what we read earlier in Ephesians 2, that God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ. He regenerated us. In verse 7, Paul writes that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. And again, in Ephesians 2, we read earlier, for you were saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift So remember these things. How we act toward others should be the result of how God acted toward us. He does good work in us so we might do good works he created us for so that others, dead in their sins, just like we used to be, might know the new life that is found only in Jesus Christ. Now being reminded of those things, it would be, a tragedy for us to just shrug it off. You know, great, good word. All right, let's go home and fire up the grill for dad. Okay, let's take just a moment and just consider, well, what should we do then? What are some of the good words? Like, what should we do in response to this, to these reminders? Now that we've been reminded, how do we live that out today? Here's a few suggestions. So the first one is this, be born again. So if you're not already, be born again. Now that's passive, right? Because it's not an action you do or can do. It's an act on us, done for us and to us by God. Our only action is to respond to his work by receiving the effects of his work. So some of us this morning, some of you here, you're currently dead in your sins, Words that Paul uses like foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by passions and pleasures, maybe, maybe that's uncomfortable to you. Maybe it's even offensive to you. But maybe there's a part of you who's just having to face it in a new way this morning and admit to yourself that it's a pretty accurate description. We here in the church, we call that conviction. And maybe following that conviction, maybe as you face that, you, that you sense a spark in you of faith, a little hint that not only are you realizing what's true about you, but you were wondering if what we've learned about God from his word might also be true. That maybe you feel the beginning of a desire to know him, to experience what it means to be saved by him. That is the work of regeneration in you. Dead people don't sense, they don't desire. So God is working, if he's regenerating, if he's giving you life this morning then receive his gift. Take the first baby steps of your new life. That may even be true for some of you here that you have been doing all that you can, giving all of your effort to be good enough in order to prove yourself valuable to God. And maybe you're finally ready this morning to give that up, to recognize that it's not up to you, it's up to him. And for you, I want you on this Father's Day to hear this, that you're, Heavenly Father loves you. You can stop trying to do the work. He's done it. He wants to save you. You being here and hearing this is evidence of that. So you too, take the first baby steps of your new birth. Repent and believe, turn away from your sin, Turn away from your selfless, selfish desires and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Trust him to be your Lord and to be your savior. That's your first good work. And you can do that now right where you are. Just right now you can confess to him. Confess your belief in him. For all of us, Let's also seek both God's heart and his eyes. Let's seek both God's heart and his eyes. Let's reject tribalism. Let's erase the dividing lines, the walls of hostility that have been destroyed already by Jesus Christ. Let's not look at others and see them as outsiders. Let's see them as God sees them sinners in need of a savior as we once were. In other words, potential brothers and sisters in his family. Let's turn our hearts toward them as God does with love and kindness and mercy and grace. The person you consider your worst enemy or whom you know considers you their worst enemy, pray for God to give you his heart for them and to give you his eyes to see them the way he does. And then lastly, for us all, let's do good. Our good God has accomplished his good work in us and prepared good works for us to do. And so let's live those out in response to remembering these things.